You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is Paul Gillieri. All right, Paul, we are still in the throes of the 30th anniversary of Versus. The anniversary. I like that little plan words there. Thank you. Could it be a foreshadowing? Could it be? This is a special episode, Jason, uh, for a special album. I know the band did uh, did their part to release, re-release, I should say, uh, some vinyl, right? Mm, yep, for yep, the yep. For, for the uh, anniversary here, thirty years. My mom, my mom, my mom. We've got uh, um, spatial audio remix as well. If you uh, yeah. have the AirPods or any kind of surround sound system, that's pretty cool. It is indeed. It is indeed. I think uh, perhaps. One of the coolest things about this re-release is uh, the opportunity to kind of revisit this album from a from a new angle. And we talked about verses for quite a, quite a while, I'd say. Uh, and uh, I think every time we've had the conversation about various tracks or this album's legacy, when it comes to the band's catalog, um, we never really had an opportunity to quite tackle it the way that I think we would have liked to. Something tells me this week might be different. Well, you know, we we um, whetted our appetite last week with uh, the retracking episode, which some people thought was um, a little blasphemous. I agree. It very much is. But that's the dangerous game we play, Paul. And, it uh, is. Uh, hey, when, you, when you're living life <laughs> by feeding that algorithm, huh? then yeah. uh, that's what we do. Uh, yeah, if you uh, would be so kind as to go on to your platform of choice, give us a rating, give us a thumbs up, a five stars, whatever the platform tells you to do. That'd be super kind because that helps other Pearl Jam fans uh, find this content. And that's what we're all about. We're, we're trying to get everybody to get under the umbrella here to make this conversation even bigger. And um, if you want to do a little bit more, you can always go to uh, Patreon and uh, sign up over there. We have links in everything we do, social media, this episode, um, to get a little bit of extra stuff and to help the show out. If not, no big deal. You're here right now, and that's what matters. Paul, you mentioned that this could be a very special episode. It is a very special episode. Um, we are going to talk about verses 30 years on, um, but not not from the me and you, or maybe even me, you and step point of view, because we could, you know, talk about it uh, and what it means to us, but what does it mean to somebody who actually was in the room? What does it mean to somebody who helped craft the songs, who was integral in the record that we have come to adore 30 years on? Um, I think we're going to find out uh, with our guest, the esteemed, Dave Abrazis. Dave, first of all, thank you for being here. How fucking cool is this? Oh, my pleasure, man. I like your I like your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. 
We've been, right. we've been, we've been done, trying to do this podcast. for a while. That's it. Yeah. Hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to kind of just get into it, bro. And Jump you know, in. Sirius XM recently did a, uh, they ran a, a track by track breakdown of oh, sorts really? of the entire record. So you had, you know, Jeff and Stone and Ed and Brendan O'Brien, they're all kind of weighing in on each track as it, as it goes through. And, you know, we want this conversation to be kind of a window into those weeks in Marin County from your perspective. All right. I'll do, I'll do the best I can to remember 30 years ago. Exactly. And, years and, ago. and what 30 years has done to alter your view of that time, if at all. So let's just kind of dive into it. Ah, all right. Okay. Jump in. I'm ready. Both feet. <laughs> the uh the Pearl Jam community reveres yeah. versus uh in the era for a number of reasons. Number one, of course, is the album itself, which just turned 30, as we all know. And that album sits as kind of the apex of your era with you know indelible and iconic live shows on either side of its release. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who feel that this record is actually a greater achievement than 10, Ooh. a better collection of songs. In some cases, so I'm not going to ask you whether or not you agree with that statement, no. but I want to ask you why do you think people have held this record so close to their heart? Um, wow, good question. You know, I can only speak for myself on that one. Uh, I think you know, my guess would be that uh, we didn't let them down. You know, I mean, when the first record came out, um. You know, before it came out, we had already started playing and, and uh, you know, the houses weren't always full, that's for sure. And, you know, the people got to know of the music of the first record uh, at the beginning because of the live shows. So, and the live shows were more aggressive than the record. And, and uh, I think more aggressive than people expected. And, and then when, when the record started, like, beating us to town, you know, for a while we would play a show and then the record would sell the following day. And then the record started selling ahead of us getting there. And, um, you know, people were, were really touched by and, and into that record. And I, I really think that we, you know, we, we delivered second record. That's why, you know, I mean, it was a sophomore album, Fans at that time were were having a hard time following up their their success, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've I've gotten a lot of messages from people that you know when they waited in line to buy the Versus record, it's almost like when they put it on, they were like they had their fingers crossed, <laughs> they're like, oh, please don't suck, you know, and um, and the record was aggressive enough and eclectic enough and accessible enough um and had so many moods on it I, it just, it just i just think that people were relieved that it was a great record you know and then they had time in time i think the record was varied enough and the music was mature enough that it, it uh you know not only did people like it when they first heard it but it continued to grow on them over time you know and a lot in that little record um, a lot in each of the songs for, for people to discover as they listened on and on. So I think that had a lot. For me, I think it's just a badass. 
It is a badass record, yeah. Dave. It's it's interesting. All those yeah. people that yeah. had their fingers crossed, the very first song they heard, yeah. let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go. yeah. Right and, in and, the face. Right in the face. And and what I yep. what I love is you know, <laughs> that is a that's a Dave song. You really you recently yeah. uh, released a, a drums only video of you playing goat. Yeah. On your, you, yeah. Your YouTube channel. And uh, <laughs> I think pretty much everybody listening knows that you're the principal writer of that song. So yeah. maybe, maybe talk to us a little bit about coming up with that riff. And I guess more importantly, how yeah. that riff evolved into the song that we, we all know and love today. Yeah. Well, that, that riff, the guitar part, I was at home. I had my acoustic guitar and, um, you know, I had been discovering through the, you know, Stone and I would show up early at the gallery of Potato Head for rehearsals and, and mess with ideas that he had and, and trying out new gear. So there was always new things coming up. But I noticed his alternate tuning. So I had just started to mess with, you know, drop D tuning and things like that at home. And, you know, when I first came up with the riff, it was. I mean, I, I thought of it more like a stomp, you know, it was like that kind of tempo on the acoustic guitar. And then uh, one day I was at rehearsal and Stone wasn't there. Nobody was there yet. Stone had this huge stack sitting in there and his guitars. And I thought, huh. So I picked up his guitar and turned on his amp Which and started it? playing that. Oh, it was the Sunburst number three, the one with the three on it. And uh, I, I never even thought about that until just now, but I remember. <laughs> we have guitarists that listen now. They want to know. Yeah, it was the one he tried to break <laughs> during Lollapalooza. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just started playing it, and the sound was so huge that I just started like playing it fast, you know. And Stone came in and was like, huh. And he started playing it. And then Mike and, and Jeff meandered in and they started playing it. And then Eddie just started vocalizing on top of it. It just, just kept turning into this thing. And by the end of the day, it had turned into uh, pretty much two thirds of what it became. Uh, the thing about the Versus record, a lot of the songs um, compared to what they are on the album, they were just really heavy penciled sketches um, mm. or what and you know, like glorify G and go both like the midsection drum fill stuff. None of that existed until the moment I put them down. You know, it wasn't something that I worked on or anything like that. It just came up that day in the studio, and so um, yeah, they just kept growing. So, but that one, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty cool. I remember Stone saying after we were done with it, we had just finished listening to Brendan's mix. And we were about to, to uh, have dessert at the site, and Stone said, "Hey, so how does it feel to have one of your songs on a big rock record?" You know. So he already and, knew it was going to be on the record. That. That's how good it was. Yeah, we were we were filling out. Uh, I think we were filling out the copyright, you know, writer stuff, and all that paperwork. And um, it was one of those things where I mean, at that point, I remember saying, "Hey, I don't," you know. No, he said, you're going to have a, a, a writing credit. Yeah. And, and I pointed out that I didn't, I didn't feel like it should say Aberzee's better. You know, I, to me, you know, I pointed out that, uh, that I just had, I had an idea with the band and 
as far as I was concerned, you know, we should all have our names on it. And hey, Dave, was there were you part of that conversation for sequencing though? Like, like, how did it feel when it when it hit you that wow, like that song is going to open the record? I didn't. I, I was looking at the whole record. I didn't even look at it that way. Yeah, cool. uh, I, I, um, I, I was just proud of the music. I knew that once it got mastering and started, you know, looking at uh, where things were going to sit. I mean, uh, uh, that's a big part of making the record is mastering and, and how one song ends and song ends, you know. Um, that that has as much to determine the track flow as anything. So did you think, did you, uh, did you like that final sequencing then? Did you like that your song yeah, happened to work yeah, out yeah. as number one? Okay. Uh, I like that the beginning of the record started that way. Not yeah. necessarily that it was my song, but that it started. That it was that, that one kind of punch. That that little bit of meandering, which yeah. in, in, the meandering at the beginning is also a meandering at the beginning of Brat. Right. Um, those are actually me letting the rest of the guys know what the click track tempo is. <laughs> <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what it is. Me starting the, to play so they all knew what it was because we tried playing with the click track in everybody's head and that did not work out <laughs> at all uh most of the songs on that record that we did to click it was just it was just barely anybody else and just my drums and click I yeah play. i can imagine yeah, there's, because there's a, there's a swing and a groove to that record so i can imagine if the if the, if the da, da, da is, hit, is in your head you might not feel the groove as much you might feel more um, um no that's no nope, no nope, too much credit too much credit there no when we the one time we tried it stone ended a, a measure and a half after the song and Jeff ended uh, uh, about three beats before I did. So right. we just decided that. Part <laughs> so hold on, I want to talk about the site then, because um, it's actually in Paul's sort of backyard in, uh, in ah, Paul's backyard. Paul, you, you, you're from Daly city, right? Uh, San Francisco right. and uh, lived yeah. in Daly city for a spell. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so he, he's it. aware of that area, the Mar the Marin County area yeah. and the site and all that. Beautiful, yeah. And yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's beautiful. There's actually not a lot of like video or imagery online, so it's hard to gauge um, exactly right. what, what it is. Um, but for all intents and purposes, it was gorgeous. You called it a paradise. Um, Ed famously did not well, find it that so or, or, or had trouble um, feeling comfortable yeah. in that. In that, Yeah, he, he, he said what he said, you know, whether he backed it up now or not, I don't know. You know, it to me it was um, it was a it, it was a paradise to me because it had an incredible leave console and the people that worked there were awesome and the dog partner was amazing. You know that was why it was awesome. We were in the studio, in the kitchen, or in my bedroom, so it wasn't. You know, the setting was peaceful and it was away from everything which I thought was, I mean, that was fine with me. I could have went either way. It wouldn't matter. Where we were I, at, but that's what I was going to ask. Is it, the it, place, it, did, the did place it help was you? Paradise. Uh, the place was paradise because my drum sounded great mm. and the band was firing on all cylinders. That's, that's, you know, there's always, there's always been this misconception that like, you know, it's almost like you can picture me standing on the edge of this beautiful valley going, this is amazing. I didn't give a fuck. It was, you know, it was a Neve console that sounded unreal. Brendan had everything he needed to get um, my drum sounding amazing. The headphones didn't suck. It was paradise. <laughs> you know, that's how I saw I'm it. I'm glad you flushed that out, Dave, because I think some people think about only the views. 
some people think about whole, the entirety of it. Like it's, it's this really um, well put together um, estate and all your needs are met. So you're comfortable in that sense. But like, I could see how sure. if you can tune out the life part of things, and only focus in on music because you're not, you don't have to worry about, you know, a short ceiling or bad AC that would be better for you as a musician. Um, Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I get, I guess, but that still that didn't come into play. I mean, if we would have recorded in the gallery of Potato Head, I would have felt the same way about it. I mean, Paradise to me was uh, that band um, accomplishing what we were accomplishing. You know, it, it really, I mean, the setting was beautiful. There's no doubt, but I mean, yeah, I, and as far as being away from everything and all that stuff, um, that was nice, but to me, I didn't really feel like we were away from much because all that we had, all that had surrounded me for the year and a half previous was the, the four guys. No. So I didn't see anything um, as far as the location. Uh, yeah, it was beautiful, but looking back, I wish I'd have enjoyed it more. I wish I would have taken advantage of the scenery more. You know, I mean, the only time I really enjoyed the area was when we went to play golf. Brendan and Stone and I would go play golf. Uh, other than that, um, pretty much in the studio. Period. So. When when you guys yeah. were were done, you know, weeks later, whatever it was, five, six weeks, three weeks, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stone has said that you guys kind of felt wiped out, kind of exhausted, and, and burnt out from 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 the experience. Do you did you feel that way? No, no, uh-uh. no, not at all. Nope. Um, no, I, I was. Um, I didn't see anybody else really feeling burnout. The only the only tension that I recall um, was, you know, waiting for Eddie to finish his song. You know, so we on like that. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, that was it. No, I I I didn't sense that at all. I I if anything, I knew we were ready to get back to work, get mm. back to you know, playing shows and, and doing that stuff. That that's a great segue, Dave, because I think a lot of people love this record because they think it captures the life energy that you guys had at the time. Yeah. And you were able to capture that in the studio, which I think is is a bit of a contrast to the way that uh Ten sounded, that big arena rock, yeah. you know, with the reverb. And I mean that that's not yeah. a, a dish on Rick. I mean that that you know that's a timeless no. mix well, that and you that, always love. But well the mix, don't forget the mix was actually Tim Palmer who had done I mm. believe he had something about the love bone, but he had done like Robert Plant, Tin, Tin Machine, right. all these huge, amazing, well-produced records, you know. Um, but yeah, it was it was different for sure. I mean, we were a cohesive, we were we were a band at that point for you know year and a half or something, you know. We and and yeah. a band that was was touring and working really hard. So and and the element of the band that that I really enjoyed was that we were also um, still loose, you know. On stage, we were still discovering each other. We were ballsy enough to invent stuff on the stage that just make shit up as we went. And um, yeah, so you know, if anything, the the, the break from touring, the, the touring made us, you know, cohesive. And then when we got back into the gallery of potato head basement um it was like all of a sudden we were forced to be five guys with different personalities in a room again 
rather than five guys taking on the world on stage mm-hmm. playing music you know we were we were again we were sharing our personality creating well, let me let me add another personality in there what was it like sure. like working with brendan o'brien to create that drum sound that you really liked and the way that was uh, showcasing the live energy that really became signature to fantastic. you guys yeah he was you know brendan is exceptional uh human um and a very skilled uh engineer as far as the production um you know he functioned as a as a listener it was great you know he would hear what we were doing and he would just like the comments he made to me uh, you know a few things like like on rat you know was you know why don't you open up on the ride symbol during that part you know just little tiny comments mm. but he really kind of it, you know, I wasn't, I, you know, after we recorded, I'd record the drums and I felt good about them. And once he agreed, then I was done. The guys would go in and, you know, fix or overdub or whatever. And then after dinner, I would hear what happened, you know. So I don't know what, to what extent he was producing parts in the room with them. But with me, it was really great because... Um, it, it it was really organic. He just let me do what I did, and when things didn't work um, for him as a listener, he would point it out to me in such a way that it was easy for me to say, "Oh, okay, cool." You know, he allowed me. He didn't he didn't mess with my ego much. You know, he knew uh, that the most important thing that that he could do is allow me to be confident, to me, and and I, I think. Uh, he knows as well. I mean, without confidence of the drum, the drummer, then the songs just, you know, as far as the song stuff. So he allowed me to be confident. It's the engine room. If, if you're not, if you're not feeling sure. it, yeah, how can anybody right. else feel it? Right. And and like songs like Rearview Mirror, you're jumping ahead in your sequence, but he um, <laughs> he wanted something from me that i didn't know the song needed and i if he would have worded it some way i wouldn't have got it and like when we played the song the first time i was like all right done you know and and the click track's going in my head really loud and the song ends boom and he kept it going and i'm sitting there and it's just starting to aggravate the shit out of me (laughs) i mean i'm really i'm just like going what is going on and i'm like Yo, 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 yelling into the mic, you know, turn off the fucking quick track. And he kept it going. And then he, he clicked on, he said, uh, just a minute, Dave, click, click, still going. And I'm just fucking fuming at this point. And then he turned it off and he said, um, Dave, can you uh, do it again? But, you know, I just need a little more from you. That is a vague note. And uh, yeah, and that was my, I, I remember I just sat there. What the? A little more what, you know, first I'm like, I'm aggravated about being, you know, left out of my own, you know, with that click track going, but I'm like, okay, you know, what do you mean a little more? He's ah, just more, just give me more. I'm like, all right. So click track starts and we do it again and it's over. Boom. Click track still going. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm waiting for him to tell me, you know, I want feedback instantly, you know? but I get, all I get is that click track. And I'm just starting to think. Uh, and then he says, just a second, just a second. And the click track, I'm like, you know, turn off the fucking click track. So it turns off. And uh, 
he said, yeah, Dave. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I just, just a little more from you though. And I'm like, okay. The whole song. <laughs> All right. A little more. I'm like, I'm like, do you want, yeah. Do you want like more washed? Do you want more? Yeah. He's like, you know, just, I don't know. Just, just a little more. And, you know, I mean, at this point in my career, I had those, you know, my, my wrists were all fucked up. Everything was fucked up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to get really, I'm like, okay, you know, I'd like a little more of a specific direction. If you're not happy with what I'm doing, you know what I mean? I'm starting to get the, an attitude of a guy who had just been on a big, huge tour and had a bunch of people loving him. And stuff. So I was getting kind of pissed and uh, <laughs> he wouldn't give it to me. He just kept kind of being really vague and then he started the click track and i started to count it in and he could oh just a second and then he kept the click track going and i'm sitting there and i am fuming at this point he wants the click track is off. so loud yeah that's what yeah he was the whole time he was he wanted he knew how to get it without mm-hmm. to play a certain day or this or that and so the next time i counted it off i mean i counted it off through my teeth <laughs> and I beat the fuck out of my drum, and at the end, I slammed my 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 fist through the snare drum, and through the sticks, grabbed the snare, went outside, hurled it off the cliff, and split. <laughs> and that's the story behind the stick throwing at the end of your premiere. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, Amazing. yeah. Jonathan Mover, the drummer Jonathan Mover, was at the site a few months later, and he actually climbed down the hill and got. There. Oh, you got it. Oh, Where, do, you, do you still no, have it? I didn't get it. No, no, John got it. He deserved it. That was a hell of a height. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah, wow. I was pissed, man. I was so mad. And I threw a rock star tanty and stormed out. Um, and the yeah, magic producer got, got he, his take. Yeah, he got his take. <laughs> what and, a and I would I I wouldn't no, I wouldn't brilliant. change a thing. I you know, looking back at it, um, yeah, it was it was absolutely the right thing for him to do because what he got out of that track was more than I had to give. You know, I uh, want to talk about um, your drums. Oh, there's themselves. there's another one. There's okay, another go one. Go ahead, another go great story. Go yes. And Brendan O'Brien, this was my payback. Um, <laughs> one one night we're having we're playing poker after dinner, and I heard him mention, kind of not to me. But, you know, loud enough that he knew I could hear that he's basically mentioning how much he hated splash symbols and China symbols. Oh, Just Lord. hated them. Can't say that. And I'm you. sitting there going, huh. So the next day, I didn't even know what song we were going to work on. I got up a little early. I went into the studio and I took down all my symbols and put up nothing but China. <laughs> and that, that, that day we tracked Animal. Okay. I love that story. Yeah. (laughs) Don't like them, huh? Well, here you go. Don't like this thing. (laughs) I was such an asshole, man. (laughs) You know what, though? You you got you got him back in a very clever way. It wasn't like no, no one threw any. Anything? Uh, well, you threw your symbol, but uh, you're a snare. But you, yeah. no one you know, threw punches. No one yelled. Really, no, it's like, like a little passive aggressive, like Jack. Yeah, it was a very, very, very passive aggressive camp. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about your drums specifically. 
Sure. Now, Jimmy, we spoke to Jimmy's show, if you're old tech, a few months ago. Yeah. He mentioned something about when you guys were in Europe. I think I think he said Germany, but I could be wrong. And you fell in love with DW drums. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it was. Um, we were in Frankfurt and the DW guys, uh, you know, at that point, the other drum companies were getting in touch and saying the wrong shit, you know, trying to, you know, want to pay me or, you know, Hey, we'll hook you up. And yeah, I've been a fan of your drumming for years. It's like, oh, come on. I've only been <laughs> fucking out there for seven months. And, um, but GW on the other hand was like, you know, they didn't give free shit away. Um, only thing they did was promise that you had, you know, something disastrous happened. They would, have, you know, they would help remedy situations right away. Tour support. And, uh, when I was in Frankfurt, um, this photographer, Lissa Whale, um, she had, un unbeknownst to me, spoken highly of me to the folks at Sabian and the folks at DW. And, um, so they came out and the DW guys, I was playing <laughs> at the time, you know, my drums were the Ludwig kid, the big 26, 15, 16, 18 tub. That's like Tommy Lee style, wasn't it? 26? Uh, John Bottom? Yeah, a little more bottom. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I had to clean it up. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, they showed up and they, they wanted me to check out a kit. And what they brought me was a satin pink 20-inch kick drum with a 12, 14, 16. And I was like, wow. I mean, it looked like a Barbie, you know, it looked like Barbie's fun kit, you know? And I was like, huh. And we started after the show, Brett, our sound man came up. Um, I don't even recall actually being fully off the stage yet when he came up and said, those are the drums you're playing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> and I remember they sounded amazing in the, in the monitors and that just started, you know, our thing. And, and, from, you know, after that, they, they built me a kit and the next tour started, um, at the First Avenue Princess Club, and there was oh, the white kit. Yeah, there yeah. was that white kit. Wow. Of course, they, they forgot to send the hardware. So for that show, we had to borrow uh, one of the bartenders. We went to his house and scooped up all his cymbal stands. That's random. Speaking <laughs> of hardware, Dave, speaking of hardware, you yeah. got your own signature snare drum coming out soon. Who did you yeah. partner with? Oh, it's out. Um, are, are, are we going to uh, recognize it as like the Dave A sound or is it like evolved from the kind of snare well, sounds that we heard in the early nineties? The interesting thing, like the versus record and the Vitology record, there's a different snare drum on every song. Hmm. And, um, Cause you threw them all over the cliff. So that, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> to me, you know, the snare really, it, it's such an important part of, uh, you know, uh, of the song recording and all that stuff. so you know i mean i've been approached many times throughout the years about doing a signature snare uh the thing was you know and of course live you know i, I was using uh brady jarwood stave snare, and it, it was a 12 by 7 and i used it because i was able to get tones out of it that mirrored all those different snares that i used on the versus record um but over the years, I've never found a snare drum musical enough 
to do that for me, you know. And um, Jeff Woods uh, was drum company. He he out of the blue he uh, got in touch with me and. and uh, you know, I hadn't heard of his company. I hadn't really been researching new companies or anything. And um, he said he wanted to send me a gift. But okay. And he sent me a snare drum, a 12 by 7, uh, in versus orange. <laughs> and the thing just tore my head off. It sounded incredible. Um, it was really an, an inspired instrument. And... Um, so, you know, it, it, we started a dialogue and when he approached me about, you know, doing a, a you know, a signature snare, you know, I, I, you know, he knew, he knew enough about me at that point to know what I needed out of it. And he was confident that he could do it. And at that point, I, I become really good friends with Ron Danette, who made, uh, you know, his, 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 Essentially, the metal snares they use, material-wise, metal. Um, you know, his drums are incredible, and him and Jeff are best buddies. But uh, Jeff and I started talking, and lo and behold, he did manage to create that drum that you know just was it. That was it. You know, so the twelve by seven Dave Avery signature snare was born. <laughs> And I couldn't be more happy. Actually, we're doing a piccolo and uh, and a uh, fourteen by five and a half. Also, oh, so if somebody really wants the Dave A sound, they've got a few options to choose from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of them are. You know, the thing about all of them will be the the ability to get um, what you want out of the drum. But the first and foremost is for it to be the ability for me to be happy. And Jeff and I decided, you know, he, he's hand-making each one of them. Oh, so, wow. yeah, so this way, you know, because that was a big deal. You know, there's a lot of signature drums out there where you hear the sound and, you know, on the records, but they're not using it in the studio, you know, or you see them live and the one that they're playing weighs seven pounds more than the one that's five or company or, um, sub out the manufacturing of the shells or whatever, you know what I mean? So there's, yeah. there's just that weird thing. And, and I didn't want that. I wanted like to be able to take, you know, if, if the one in front of me or to, to grab the 20th one off the rack and have them be exactly the same drum. So, so we've done it that way. And, and, you know, I knew that it would make it, um, there wouldn't be 200 of them available, you know, it would be in small batches has been and uh it was just the second batch came out and lasted three days so we put on the third batch so where where can one kind of get on the on the waiting list uh woods custom drums you know it, it, you know we talked about going to retail but they're not making it retail, so <laughs> really cool but um it's been really amazing because it's like I've been doing these like drum tutorial things with folks where I'll chat, get on the phone and talk for an hour or two or whatever about drums and life or what have you. And, um, and then I put together like a, a video kind of a tutorial thing. Of, um, mostly it's been like to, to inspire drummers who are stuck in a rut or whatever. Um, and it's been 
a whole lot of fun. And as well as this drum coming out and seeing the response and how it's affecting drummers to get it. Like the reviewers always mention that sounds inspiring and to play more. That's like me. That's, that's as a musician. That's all you want is to be inspired. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, all I want is at this point, I, you know, all I want is to inspire. No, mm. that's what inspires, you know? And, uh, so it's, yeah, it's the best of, of all of it. Really. You know, Dave, I, I think one of the most inspired drum beats that mm. any Pearl Jam fan would say they've ever heard is, uh, what you put together on, um, WMA. Ah. I mean, uh, versus it's very groove based animal and rats obviously come to mind but right. for for us i think the most obvious example is wma what do you remember about creating that bed of music that bed of music with jeff well it was interesting you know jeff had that that uh you know stone had that little guitar part and uh jeff started playing that really kind of slinky almost beatles bass thing and and I just went to the toms for whatever reason. Maybe I was tired of hitting my hat so much. I don't know. And it turned into this thing. Um, and I remember it at the Tata Head, it got to a point where it was like, you know, we knew what it was going to be, but rather than finish it, um, we just we let it be that for now. We'll finish it in the studio. So it still had that sense of um, not an overworked idea. And uh, once we got in the studio, I laid down, I set up my Ludwig, which on Rats and Daughter and Rearview Mirror, that's my Ludwig kick drum with just one floor tom and a couple of cymbals. I set up a, a, a different kit than my typical kit. And the idea of that was, you know, it was like when we were rehearsing and we were playing, I was still in more of a live mindset. And I knew that um that the record needed i needed to things needed to be tighter i needed to pull it in um if you listen to the version of daughter on the record and the live version of daughter they're two different drum parts and one of them works great live it's entertaining and the other one there you go but it wouldn't have worked on the record and so stripping the drums down to where i had to play it differently was the right thing to do with wma i set up the whole kit um and i started doing the tom thing we recorded the whole thing but you know brendan yeah it noticed that it it moved so much that it took away from the power of the chorus when the chorus came in um you know the song was already breathing and so his idea was to take and make the intro and the verse parts um more almost not mechanical but more regimented less mm -hmm. less wiggle room less groove so he actually made a loop the drum part the main drum part the the, the you know drum step part at the beginning that's the drum loop he took the, the old school loop you know i recorded he cut the tape and strung it through some mic stands and created that loop um and then <laughs> i came back to the studio and there was all this percussion shit laying around and I saw some octobon mm. uh, old Tama like you know they're two feet two foot three foot long Stuart Copeland used to use them a lot I saw some I was, wow these are killer can I uh, you know I want to I want to put this on WMA 
And I'm like, okay. So we set him up. He threw a mic on him. And I did two passes, and that was the drum part. So wow. it just came together really organically. And um, yeah, I, you know, I was when I heard the final mix of that song, I was, I was really that that more than more than I think more than anything else on the record. Um, I was impressed with, by what Brendan had done. You know, the way he crafted the vocals and the way he shaped the mix. I thought. It was just awesome. It made it's like I, I realized that he had a vision, and he was able to take no question what we did and 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 well, yeah, and, and actually, I don't know if he got to what he wanted, but he was able to get close enough to what he wanted without stepping on anybody's toes. That's a hard thing to do as a producer, and, and when you when you well, especially when you're dealing with. When you're dealing with a successful band, yeah, paying for their studio for the first time, time you know? too. Yeah, <laughs> um, you said you stripped down the set for certain songs. Um, yeah, how much of that was your idea, Jimmy's idea, Brendan's idea? Was it a combination? Um, that, how the conversations go know, for that? Brendan had Brendan had mentioned um, on Rat, I believe he had mentioned. Maybe maybe we set up in the tile room, and to be quite honest, I you know as I recall, I was kind of feeling lazy about it. You know, I just thought, well, you know what? Let's just set up what I'm using: you know, kick drum, couple cymbals, four tom. That's it, and uh, and it, it just stayed in there. And the sound was so cool that I didn't mess with it. You know. On the other songs, instead of taking apart my drums in the big room, I just went and played up drums. Got it. And how how <laughs> many of how many of the songs do you say? Or I should say, what percentage of each song, let's say, mm-hmm. was formed at Potato Head and versus the site? Like, was anything written at the site really, or was it kind of just like the like the last um, yeah kind of thing? There was there well you know. The, Again, they were sketches. You know, nothing was fully laid out um, at Potato Head. We had good ideas, but you know, the vocals were a lot of them were still just syllable lines and things like that. And uh, but the one I remember coming back into the studio one day, and Eddie had just Eddie was in the control room with Brendan and Nick, and they were listening back to Hearts and Thoughts called at the time, uh, elderly woman. And uh, I walked in and heard about a minute and a half of it. And I looked at Ed and I said, do you mind if I play on that? And he said, no. And so I went in and I think I went through it twice. And that's what's on the record. I just played to his guitar part. That's simple. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how we were. We were a great band. I mean, to me, looking at how those songs came together, and how that record came together and the recording and how quick and, and almost effortless it was. Um, you know, it, it, it made me really look forward to um, the future of the band, you know. Um, and when we, when we went in to make the, I was surprised when we started working on Vitalogy, how like some songs, Tremor Christ and things like that. I mean, you know, that 
that drum track is the only time I ever played song. I was just a stone started playing the riff. I started playing, and that's it. It was done. Um, and to me, that was, you know, when Eddie started playing guitar, things started getting a little bit, the, the, the things shifted. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it, it wasn't as natural or as easy. We weren't trying to sound like anything and we weren't trying to, we weren't trying to do anything other than make the best record we could. And with that, um, we were just trying to record the best versions of ourselves the best song we were trying to create the best songs and and we were doing it so quickly that we were addressing the song we weren't looking at our image we weren't looking at it was all just really uh, you know a narrow focus on the day that we were working on you know and um yeah i i really i you know it, it made me realize what a great band that we were right well you guys yeah. were the best on the planet i mean it, it's it's no surprise <laughs> well, <when> you get <laughs> defining ourselves you know <laughs> yeah, no, that, you that, know that's it? fair Dave. that's fair but i mean <laughs> yeah. i i gotta ask though because with 10 ed was you know in many respects the new the the new kid on the block and i think in some ways that was relatable because with verses you know that that's kind of the huh. role that you played so I'm kind of curious, like, how did you approach those sessions? You're first with a group of guys who'd already made a record together. Did you feel like you and Ed had something in common from, I guess, that that outsider's perspective in that respect? Well, at least in the studio. At the beginning, when we got on tour, I felt like we had something in common. When we went in to make the Versus record, I mean, Eddie and I had something in common. Well, I guess I should say that Ed and I had something in common. Eddie and I, I didn't really know that guy. Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean? I didn't know who, you know, that side of him. Um, you know, it, it's like the dynamic shifted a lot um, personality-wise throughout the tour. I don't know, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I looked at it like, you know, he had to start putting up, he had to find his strengths to deal with all the the new part of his life. Um, Whereas to me, I didn't feel any of that. You know, I just felt like I was, you know, on top of my game, enjoying the shit out of playing music and and dealing with some physical challenges uh, from playing so hard. But other than that, you know, I didn't, I I didn't put up, you know, I wasn't under the same pressures he was. I was just going to say, um, did, 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 yeah. did, you, did you recognize the very big difference in what it is to be the drummer of the biggest band on the planet versus the lead singer of the biggest band on the planet? Or was it kind of like... No, just- I, no, I understood the differences between how the character of the singer and the biggest band in the world and the character of the drummer. Uh, situationally, you know, I think we were all in the same situation um, to different extents, but at the same time, it was, regardless of what was ever said in the press, it was what we all wanted, individually as well as the band, be as successful, if not more, than we got. You know? Yeah. So we, all, we all dressed up, we all dressed up like kids when we were kids. Yeah, no, you bring, <laughs> up, you bring up an interesting point. I was just actually just watching a clip of um, Conan O'Brien interviewing uh, 
Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and um, Steve Albini about the 30th anniversary of In Utero. And they talk about how um, some people got mad at them with Nevermind because it blew up and they're like, oh, you're you're too big now. You're not the same. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, we can't control if people happen to like our music that we are proud of. That's just that's just a reaction to what we f- we are proud of. You can't control that. Right. And I think there's a, there's right. a, is a different, it's it, obviously it's a, it's a similar um, approach or reaction, Yeah, you know, in a way, I mean, I never really understood the whole, you know, or agreed with the, the approach of, I mean, at the time um, we were popular, but to keep nudging it forward at the time was to say, you didn't want it to be nudged forward. You know, to be the biggest band in the world, you had to counterculture. Say, counterculture. I don't want to be in the biggest band in the world. And, you know, to, to be a huge corporate rock band, you had to say, I oh, hate corporate rock. You know what I mean? It was like, and that's it's something I never did because um, it was bullshit. Like to say, I don't want to be on the cover of. Rolling uh, rock. I don't want to be on the cover of a magazine in an article that you're on the cover on. It's kind of fucked up, you know. <laughs> it's like then don't, you know. I don't want to play huge places. Well, then don't, you know. It's like it's just one of those things that. that um, but at the same time, you know, saying those things and acting that way helped uh, make it exactly what. Well, let me ask you this then, you know, the, the record, you guys finished recording the record mm-hmm. and I'm, I, you know, there, again, I, I'm going to reference this Cameron Crow article just because, you know, there's only so many things you can read and, <laughs> and, and Ed admitted to having some sort of like meltdown about how he, he felt like he was being rushed and he didn't think it was ready and he wanted to make sure it was ready. And yada, yada, yada. And of course, Brendan talked mm-hmm. about the ledge. Um, I just want to get your perspective on when you guys were done recording. Um, did you feel like this was we did what we what we came to do? I feel really comfortable with this. I, I'm I trust that Brendan's going to put the f- finishing touches on and it's going to be amazing. Or did you feel like there's still a couple of songs we could add to this thing? Um, well, that was the cool thing about verses. Now, vitology was different, um, but verses, the songs were mixed before we moved on to another song. I mean, we would we would track. They would overdub uh, when Eddie's vocals were done. Excuse me, Brendan would mix, and um, and we would hear it, and that was that. Uh, when we left, when I got in my car and, and the studio was empty, and I said my goodbyes to the staff and the dog. Uh, when I drove home, I had a cassette of the Versus album, an unmastered cassette, which was the same record that came out. Wow. And yeah, on the way home, I was fucking thrilled. I thought it, it was incredible. I thought we, we accomplished what we set out to do. We made a great record. Um, every song, you know, I remember it was the first time I listened to the album. It was mm. the first time I listened to the song as a listener rather than, you know, I mean, without my ego attached to them, uh, without my without thinking of the drum parts or how things just listen to the song. And when it was over, wow, started it again. And I thought, okay, great. 
You know, I want to hear it again. And, you know, and that to me, it was, I was very pleased with what we accomplished. Um, you know, and at that point, yeah, they were done. And, you know, while we were making the record, there were times where, yeah, Eddie, you know, Eddie had to go through what he had to go through, whether it was to find inspiration or just to take a break from the pressure that he was under or that he was putting himself on. Mm. Um, which I, I respect and, and, and can understand, you know, um, a lot different when you're crafting a message versus playing drums, you know? I mean, you know, he knew that he was going to have to go out and for the next however many years of his life, he was going to have to possibly sing those words over and over and over, you know? So it, it was, I don't think I understood it as much then as I do now, having been a part of so many records with other people and having uh, produced albums. But, um, yeah, he, you know, kudos to him. He did an incredible job. And whatever he had to go through, I'm glad he did. Everyone needs a different process. Yeah. And I mean, what's incredible is, is what you guys did with that music once you actually got on the road. Oh, I yeah. Mean, uh, I, I'm going to ask a, a question that, that that's a little closer to home for me. You guys went and played Slims down in San Francisco, my yeah. hometown. Yeah. After the completion yeah. of the recording of that album, you guys played seven versus tracks, okay? Yeah. Uh, you had live debuts of Better Man and Whipping as well. Yeah. What do you remember about that night? What versus songs felt really part of that the, the new live repertoire, which songs do you think maybe needed more plays? I remember we didn't rehearse at all. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I remember um, that it was way too small a place for that band to play. In. It was just so, I mean, it was dangerous. You know, when we got there, when we left, there was some girl that got pinned between a wall and the band. I mean, it was hardcore. It was over the top. But you know, it was another fine example of, you know, the thing I remember most was as soon as I sat behind, you know, as soon as I hugged the crew and sat behind my kid, it's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and, you know, I remember, I remember at the end of that show, I wished that we were going to play another two hours. Wow. You know, it, really? It felt weird. It felt weird to not be getting on the bus and going to the next. Yeah, cause it was fucking awesome, you know, and it felt so good to be playing my song, you know, felt That's good to be point, expressing yeah. my myself to people finally, rather than interpretations of a record that I didn't really care for. I was actually being able to, to play songs that um, were, you know, it's like I was playing things that were of me rather than playing versions of somebody else that were, which was awesome you know it was like i felt like what i was doing was giving finally you know um instead of giving myself the music i was giving of myself to the people in the audience. I, I mean i think it and i said at the very beginning that the album is the apex that's that's got these beautiful shows on either side of it and and those shows are amazing for just different reasons but right. you, know, you mentioned that just now that you didn't feel the same thing for the 10 songs or the 10 era songs, because obviously there's a couple other songs that didn't make the, that record. Mm. It's one thing to play someone else's parts, but mm. I will argue that many people, and, and God bless Dave Cruzen and what he did, 
But many people right. will say that the preferred versions of listening of that record right. are you're playing your interpretations of that. And you can you can speak to the unplugged, you can speak to Drop in the Park, you can speak to the yeah. single version of Evenflow. So there's Atlanta ninety-four. <laughs> yeah. So so I want you to I want you to expand on <clears throat> on on not preferring 10, but how you were able to make it a Dave A record in a sense. Well, see, that was, you know, props to those guys because um, when I first got the uh, cassette um, of, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the songs from 10 before the audition, I was like, here's the songs, here's the band. Um, I didn't make it through the song. I, you know, there's actually a cassette of it somewhere. I was on the radio and we listened to him live. Um, and maybe 25 seconds as far as I got it before I stopped and said, eh. Which song live? All of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the next day I called the management office and Eddie and Jeff were there. And I asked them, you know, do you guys want me to learn these songs as they are? Um, if they would have said yes, I was going to say, then it's not. Right. And um, thankfully, they said, no, let's just, just come up and let's just jam. Let's just play. Wow. And still to this day, with no exaggeration, I can count on both hands the amount of times I've heard and all the way through any song from them. Oh, the studio version. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they gave me the room to, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I got rough ideas about them, but when I first came up and we played, you know, we played for almost a week and we didn't work on any of those songs. We just played and tried different things. And then when we did start working on the songs, um, Wherever there was any kind of question, you know, I, I, I listened to the changes. I went in, I'd, I'd hear the beginning and the tempo and then kind of skip to how they transitioned and all that stuff. Right. But I didn't, I didn't listen to the whole song and try to cop it, you know. Um, and I just played the way, you know, it was my interpretation of the song. But the difference between the verses and songs on Vitology and things like that, those were... You know, those were my arrangements. You know, I was I was the one dictating how from that guitar to that. Whereas on the ten record, um, I, I I was given the room to take the songs the way I wanted to take them, but I did still have to respect the the pulse arrangement of what they were, you know, and. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really amazing. Uh, like, if you listen to, what is it, the Mural Amphitheater show. Mm -hmm. That's as close to the record as I think I, I ever was. Because you know, that was, that, the week before that show was when we started working on those songs. Wow. And so that was, yeah. And after that, I started hearing the nuances and understanding Stone's guitar playing more and started, you know, playing what I felt in response to those things. So it's like, yeah, I, I never, 
got married to them. But, you know, again, there was the difference between playing live, you know, performing and, and wanting, uh, for, you know, wanting it to be, I think as much for me as the audience, when I got off stage, I wanted to feel like I just got my ass kicked, you know? And luckily, when we got on the road with the Chili Peppers at the beginning, um, after our, our little stint in the van, um, we only had 30 minutes to make our point. Right. And so, man, you know, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I hit myself in the face. It just hit everybody <laughs> in the face. And so only having that amount of time uh, made me um, really drive the song a lot harder than I think I would have. We would have went out and had our own tour. So I was really grateful. That not only that, but having you know Jimmy Chamberlain from the Smashing Pumpkins and Chad Smith as essentially as my you know nightly drumming mentors, watching those guys play every night. Not bad company. So many ideas and yeah, and, and uh, so the next night, you know, it was like oh, we were always we were driving each other so hard that um, you know I, it just couldn't have been a better situation for me as a young drummer in a young band that didn't really communicate that much. You know, I was given that room to, to approach playing and performing in my own way. I mean, that, that group of guys that I was in a band with, we never sat down and talked about doing anything. We just did. I mean, it's, it shows in the light show we had, let's say, you know, it was a backdrop of the light. <laughs> you know, hey, put some lights up. <laughs> just play. That's all it was. Yeah, just play. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, I mean, you guys played the, the crap yeah. out of those songs. You, you, but I will say, you had a lot more time on that versus tour, right? Well, I held a lot more than thirty minutes, and we we have some fantastic yeah. recordings. These these pristine Brett Elias and mixed releases, oh, which yeah, shows yeah. when you look back uh, in ninety three and ninety four, really stand out to you as like the best expression of the songs on that album. You know, um, there's a Boston show and a Denver show, but that whole, the entire last tour, um, we were firing on all cylinders. I mean, that when I think of like what could have been and what, in my opinion, should have been allowed to happen with that band, I reflect on how incredibly good that band was on that last tour. So I don't have a, a favorite show per se. Um, I'm proud of them all. I thought, you know, there was always some adversity to overcome and we always did. And so, yeah, I, I can't say, I mean, I have, there are venues that were my favorite. Mesa Amphitheater. Well, you guys invented Coachella before Coachella was Coachella. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pain in the ass. Game, Shoe the shoeless, Dave. Yeah, but it was a fun one. You know, it was a pain in the ass, though, because, you know, it, there's nothing like the witnessing of something that off the, off the chart. I mean, seeing people, you know, it's like you see somebody's face and they're so excited and then you see them get kicked in the back of the head or in the side of the face. And you see somebody else who's just like this. And, you know, so that, that show had a raging dynamic to it. For sure. It was kind of a bad vibe show. One of the worst. <laughs> but 
But as far as the show goes, I mean, we pulled it off, you know. We pulled it off, and I met Bernard Fowler and Stevie Solace after that show. So I always oh. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I discovered what it felt like to have another man's balls in my hand. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Part two with Dave incoming. No, that's the George Webb. George Webb grabbed my wrist. <laughs> and we were just messing around, and I was like, hey, man, let go of my wrist. Jimmy said that George was a very good man. George is amazing. George is great. I love George death. Um, but yeah, that day I had to, to kind of drag him to the ground by his test. <laughs> but it was all in good fun. <laughs> I mean, obviously- I still wonder what people thought when they witnessed that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know how to segue around that, so I'm just going to ask my next question. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. You turn red. <laughs> well, it is also hot in my recording booth, Dave. I don't. I record in a closet with no AC. All right. Um, well, hopefully you come out of the closet. I will as soon as we're done recording. Thank you for asking. <laughs> that was a good segue, man. Thank you. You didn't know, and you didn't know how to get out of there. Come on, yeah, the real master segue, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> so let, me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, Jeff said at the time that the push and pull is what makes our band. The push and pull is what makes our band. So say it in another way, versus, you know, the record is about you guys versus everybody else. You guys as a unit, five against one, right? Mm-hmm. But in making the record, obviously everybody knows you had your own battles amongst the five of you. So I want to know mm. what battles. What pushes and pulls yielded the best results to you? Is it a full song? Is it a section? Is it a, is it a pattern? To me, the push and pull of that band was more of um, actually more of a musical statement. You know, uh, Jeff played on the back of the beat. Joan played on the front of the beat, and um, my job as a drummer was to drive the song so hard that there was that there was a tension uh, you know not a tension but a tension mm-hmm. um within the music that uh, you know to me that record when you listen to it it's like at any moment a fight could have broke out <laughs> uh you know it, this, this, there's that much tension to the song even if even though the, you know they might be playful or or, or uh you know, whatever the mood of it is, there, there's just attention to that record, which to me, like all, you know, one band that, that also had that kind of a feel was like uh, Thin Lizzy um, or, or ACDC. There was just always this like, feeling that it's just rock and roll, you know. To me, you know, the, the, there was something about great bands that especially live you felt like at any moment everything could just unravel you know and and i think you know looking back on a personal level i mean it was a passive aggressive dynamic which i think you know isn't a, it's not a bad thing it's where we were all at we didn't, we didn't know how to really communicate yeah. uh, to what to one another what we were going through ourselves 
because it's all brain, you know. And, um, you know, feelings didn't come up much. You know, it was just we relied on each other to get the job done, and we could, and that was enough. You know? um, it's like we weren't, we weren't like, you know, chumming around, hanging out at strip clubs together. You know what I mean? We weren't that kind of, we weren't those kind of guys. Um, we took it all very seriously. And um, once we got on stage, you know, it's like my best recollections of interactions on a personal level were always on stage, you know, just, just eye contact that would happen, uh, you know, where Don would flash a smile or, or Jeff and I would spit on each other. Mike would come over and we'd, you know, crack an inside joke at each other and laugh. You know, those, those dynamics were what kept the band together, you know. Um, it's an amazing thing. You know, without that, there really wasn't anything at that always you know there, there was an unspoken us against them dynamic but the, the sorry it, it, to interrupt but it, would you have hoped no, there was more of a um direct communication to establish a more cohesive us versus um, them as opposed to a an indirect I, unspoken version i think that i kind of think that my firing from the band allowed them to begin to have that I think if we would have had that, the band would have stayed together. Um, but that to me, I mean, you know, it's not just a band thing that reflects on, on our manager at the time as well. He, you know, there was just, there was no outside force that had any influence over the inside dynamic. Of that. Do I wish that we would have had that? Yeah, I do. But at the same time, um, it's a selfish thing. I wish, I wish we would have for the sake of what could have been for the music, but at the same time, had anything been different looking back, then I wouldn't be where I'm at now. And, and you know, like I wouldn't change anything. I have no regrets about it. Right. Um, it'd be nice to, to get on stage and play with them again. You know, that, that's, that. that's interesting, Dave, because, you know, Matt actually, he came down with COVID not too long ago and, and, and Dave Cruz yeah. came on and did a show. Right. And, you know, we, we heard that whole, not the whole 10 set, but was it the whole set, Jason? It was like everything, but I think it was nine songs, nine songs. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and it was interesting right. to hear Dave with the band doing that. Do you think there's a, a possibility at some point, it, would you be willing to ever get back oh, up there uh, with yeah, the guys would, and do verses or would, something like I that? Would, I'd love, I'd love to be able to get on stage. Yeah, you know, do I think it'll ever happen? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love it. It's like these songs, these these little revisits that I've been doing on my YouTube thing. Um, you know, like the Go one. People have asked me to do that stuff for a long time, um, and it was one morning. I only slept a couple hours. I was especially late. And I showed up and, and I was at the studio and I had to do some stuff early and I just thought, ah, fuck it, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. So I went to the studio and I was really tired. And for whatever reason, I just thought, eh. And I pulled the drums off of, uh, off a of go with this awesome little computer program and threw it up and wow, okay. Click track is pretty solid with that. 
And so I just sat down and played it. I hadn't played it in 30 years, you know, um, or not 30, 25 years. So I just sat down and, and played it. I was like, huh, okay, wow. Muscle memory. I, I still play that. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was the same with Animal and Breath and Alone. Um, I think Alone, I, I played it twice. But yeah, I just sat down and, and, and played them. I didn't listen to them or anything. I just played them. And- Dave, why did you guys never put that on a record? That was such a good song. How did that not make a record? <laughs> I don't know. No, I didn't. No, I, which one? Alone? Yeah. 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 I, you know, it's the same with, uh, with the song I wrote, Angel. I, you know, all of a sudden, one day I found out it was on our Christmas um, 45. And I was like, huh. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, 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 at that point, you know, I, um, it's like the, I, the, there was already a set dynamic of, of, you know, who mentioned what and, you know, and it continued, you know, it's like, um, I think in the Rolling Stone cover story, there was part of the article was when, uh, at some point, um, just her daughter play back and I was like, wow and i didn't know you know we hadn't spoken as a band about what we were doing and not doing and i asked if, if daughter was going to be the single and everyone freaked the fuck out and i was like what the fuck <laughs> you know <laughs> i was just curious you know and um and really everyone like it, it was like some unspoken thing that wow i can't believe you asked if you were going to put out a single that's what you did. Mm-hmm. So this is why, you know. So a lot of those things I didn't, I didn't uh, ever voice my opinion on. Or when the decisions did come down, like we'd have a meeting and our manager would say, "Okay, so what about this question?" Mike and I would look at each other like, "What? We never heard that question." Mm. One of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are thirty years on from all of these memories, and. I will say that I think that time allows for growth. That it allows for new perspectives. It can allow sure. for um, it. It can it can it can wear away rough edges. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask this: When it comes to the versus record, the music, are there any highs that feel less high, and are there any lows that feel less low three decades later? No. All right. Yeah, that's pretty simple. No, um, absolutely not. I um, I can't think of any. You know, I mean that album to me still doesn't to me. You know, it's been a a couple of years since I listened to it all the way through. A couple of times on a motorcycle trip, whatever, I'll just get a wild hair and I'll thing and um. Yeah, no, it, I still, uh, you know, I have an enormous sense of accomplishment um, and and my memories of creating it and my appreciation for what we created has remained just as strong as it did. Well, I, I, think, um, I think a lot of people would agree with you because a lot of people, like I said, at the top still hold this in such high regard 30 years on. And the fact that one of the guys who made those songs feels the same way that, that I think that says something. Yeah. 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 I I mean, I I was, and, and, um, 
you know, the Vitology record, uh, there was a time when I felt the same way about that record. Uh, and then I got fired, and then the record was kind of turned into an album that wasn't allowed to be as great as it was. I remember when I heard the record, um, when it was finished, and I was out of the band, and I was, I, I just, I, I don't know if I've ever been that correct. In my, in my humble opinion, the band died. Okay. Well, I hope that one day, maybe, maybe, this, maybe this show can somehow fucking force y'all into a room so we can have <laughs> a love fest. It'd be best if we just got forced onto a stage and played music. That, you know what? That would be right. amazing. Considering that would how be amazing. you guys communicate, it's probably the best yeah. way to do it. <laughs> and, and you guys were ama- you guys were amazing at it. And, and Eddie Eddie Vetter wrote on uh, uh, Love Boat Captain, uh, their their right act album. All you need is love, and you guys had a lot of it. And it's <laughs> an amazing music. It's an absolutely yes, legendary uh, chapter in the band's history, and we are forever grateful yeah. for your contributions and what you meant to that band, and and honestly, what you mean to all of us. Well, you know, as a closer, we'll say that. Um, just in case any of those fellows are listening, they probably already know, but I don't know um, just to place it out there. I, I appreciate um, those guys, and I appreciate the head full of memories and um, songs that we created and, you know, the opportunity um, to be a part of, of what we were. I earned that. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, like you mentioned, you know, time, you know, is an amazing thing. I love those guys and I'm glad. We, we love them too, Dave. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh, and you mentioned Dave Cruzen. I have to mention. I saw a video of him playing with Candlebox and that's when I realized the difference between you know, and then I saw, you know, I'd seen Pearl Jam, a snippet of Pearl Jam playing with Jack. And I remember thinking, huh. And then I realized, uh, you know, that that's what they had when they started. That's what they wanted. And then Jack is what they, is what they had after me, and that's what they wanted. And I looked at the time that I was in the band, and I thought, maybe I just, you know, maybe that isn't really what they wanted. That <laughs> was a was a, a hard driving beat shit out of a drum set. I, I respectfully, Dave, I would disagree and say that each of you for the journey that we have gotten of this band and, and people, people will grasp on the certain eras and, and have their preferences of certain albums and certain drummers. Right. And I think it, Paul and I will, <clears throat> I think agree to say that as some, as two guys who appreciate and love the entirety of the catalog in different ways. Mm-hmm. There was a necessaryness necessity for each of you yeah. because without each of you, the next thing doesn't happen. And perhaps <laughs> nothing happens after that. And I'd rather have they, 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 Pearl Jam is not Pearl Jam without your contributions. It's, it's, it, it is, it's Huge a fact. Diplomatic, you're diplomatic. I, but it's true. <laughs> it's true, Dave. <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> I, I would rather have Pearl Jam than not have Pearl Jam, and there's no Pearl Jam without you. I understand. I you know understand. what I'm saying? I understand. 
And there's yeah, a lot, there's a, there's, there's a different timeline. If Matt Chamberlain says, you know what? Fuck you. SNL. I'm sticking around. Yeah. You know what oh, I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of him for calling you and saying, get the fuck up to Seattle, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, we really do appreciate you stopping by, brother. Um, and I know you give us a lot of your time. Um, oh, pleasure. No yeah, you, you know, Dave, at some point, we'd love to have you back on just to talk vitality in more detail. This was a very versus centric show. Yeah, uh, but at anytime, some point, you we'll, guys just let me know. I'd be honored. No worries. We appreciate it, man. Um, enjoy yourself. Hopefully, we'll talk to you soon. All and right. um, thank you again. Okay, fellas. My pleasure. Take good care of yourselves and each other. All right. See you, man. Cheers, Dave. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Wow. Just a a, a fantastically epic conversation with uh, a guy, a drummer that the community has held dear for a long time and i'm just glad he was able to enlighten us on on so many different aspects of of verses and just outside of that uh of his within his career no question jason uh, i think dave made uh and continues to make an indelible impression on uh, every pearl jam fan and uh, as as does every every drummer uh, matt included no doubt um long standing drummer in the pearl jam catalog and uh, I will say, though, that um, very appreciative, not only of Dave's time and the amount of time that he very graciously gave us, but but also his candor. Um, you know, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I mean, never having had the opportunity to interview interview Dave before and uh, was was very excited for our opportunity to do so. And, uh, you know, I, I think every perspective is, is one that that offers something to a larger conversation. And, um, you know. I think that uh, Dave certainly had some 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 bold takes. I think mm-hmm. on on certain situations. Um, I think one that really stood out to me uh, almost left me um, uh, kind of arrested me a bit. There was was when he he commented on uh, life post versus. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll we'll be fortunate enough to have him on again to talk vitology in the not too distant future, but uh, he did allude to the idea that uh, he felt like there is a version of that record out there that, that maybe should have been the version that came out. And um, you know, that, and I don't know (laughs) those who are listening may or may not agree with, with that possibility. I mean, I, I, I'm on record as as saying, I thought Vitology is a masterpiece and, and uh, you know, viewed it as, as kind of the band's white album. And we've talked about that quite a bit, but uh, certainly if there is another version of that record out there, um, you know, I'm sure that particular version uh, would elicit uh, reactions from, from each and every Pearl Jam fan. But the idea that, uh, you know, the, the band was forever changed after that record. Uh, you know, I, I, the comment he made was, was that he felt like the, the band died uh, presumably meaning after they had let him go and uh, move forward with, with the way that that record was put together. I mean, there's a lot of ways to interpret that. I, I think the, the, the one way that stands out to me is the idea that the Pearl Jam throughout its evolution from, from its mother love bone origins to its current iteration uh, has experienced many little deaths and rebirths. Um, and I think that's what makes them special as a band is, is their ability to continue to impact and, and to persist. Um, 
And I think in some ways, Dave's not necessarily wrong. I mean, the, the Pearl Jam that was during that era was no more. And so in essence, you know, at least metaphorically speaking, uh, you know, that, that version of the band did indeed die and uh, they kind of reinvented themselves a little bit with Jack. And then, uh, you know, very quickly did the same thing when Matt was able to come on board. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, uh, his comment is, is something that should, should be taken, um, as, as, as like a, a fire branding statement or anything like that. You know what I mean? I, I think that there's a personal element for him in those words, but I think for, for Pearl Jam fans and, and I, 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 like, I would never ever speak on behalf of the band, but um, I, I think that there's, there's certainly an argument to be made that um, the Pearl Jam that they were at that time. And, and he made, he made, uh, made reference to this perhaps that wasn't what they wanted, you know. I mean, clearly they they moved on, right? I mean, a decision for better or worse, to, and for for better or worse, and for better or worse, in the way that it was done, and that can be argued, and those guys can have that conversation. That's not for us to know or decide. Correct. Um, they chose to end that part of their of the Pearl Jam life, if you want to use the right. life and death term. <laughs> but yeah, um, exactly. It, it was a choice made, and the consequences are there. And and Dave said that ultimately he's he's comfortable with that. I think. There is obviously a degree of like, damn it, we could have, we could have, could have, could have, and but you know that that's that that's that's regretful speak that that's coulda shoulda woulda that's Monday morning quarterback and it's hard for anybody to look back um, and have I I think a a truly fulfilling life if if you let that completely guide your future and I think um, while it still probably stings a lot for him is my feeling, my takeaway that he has found some peace with it. And you heard him say at the very end there that he still loves those guys. And, and, you know, hopefully there's some level of reconciliation at some point in some way, because it only benefits everybody. Without question. I, I, I'd be hard pressed to, to think of, of, of a Pearl Jam fan who would not love to see uh, a reunion on stage where, where Dave felt like he connected with the guys most. And I will say that, um, you know, when you start thinking a little bit about the the, the idea of, of of the relationship that they had as creative people, um, maybe it was only meant to last as long as it did, and the magic that came out of that was essentially a, a, a product of those those tensions, whether they were were yeah. slowly evolving tensions yeah. uh, or or latent ones or, or ones that were always there and just perhaps not not as visible or or understood or acknowledged by everyone involved. But I think. Um, Without question, it's fair to to question and wonder that um, if that decision had been made, like w- would they still be making records today? And we, you know we I mean? actually or, 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 we discussed that that very we question did. It was a many, what many if. Moons ago, That's right. Well, which uh-huh. um, you know, listen, there's no sense in in trying to rehash or relive or relitigate Correct. something that's already happened. Um, it's just I'm just glad that we at least got a perspective. And I mentioned it in, in one of those questions there that time roughs away or smooths away the rough edges of things. And my hope was that there was a level of, uh, I don't want to say understanding, but a level of, okay, there's a level of peace with. There was, you know, and I got that sense. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was a, there was that in, in speaking with Dave and I hope anyone listening came away yeah, with a, a similar takeaway, you know, that, that he he's in a, a good place. And uh, uh, the only thing I think he, he really 
wishes is, is the opportunity to, to perhaps one day share a stage with the guys one more time. Um, just, just to, to get that. I just want a handshake. I just want good terms. That's all I want. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I will say that I think that we are, um, we are very blessed to, to love a band that has had the fortune of, of, of being able to showcase the talents of somebody like Dave, in addition to, to folks like Jack Irons and, um, and obviously Matt Cameron <laughs> and um, you know, it, it's each one of these drummers we've always talked about had an important role to play in the, the life of the band. And that's uh, what I told him. I think I said it, it too. I said, it is exactly. <laughs> I believe it. You did. You did. And, and uh, you know, th- there's no reason that we should ever uh, disregard hide or, um, you know, avoid the chapter that, that is Dave Abrazis yeah. in, in Pearl Jam because it, it should be celebrated because it was a magical time. And I'm glad that we were able to to spend a lot of time highlighting that era in the band's catalog today with Dave and, um, you know, first person accounts, always the best. I couldn't agree more. And I hope you guys, uh, feel the same way. I, I know there's, there's always going to be conversations about, about Dave in that era versus everything else in the catalog. But you know what? Paul and I are here to say that, to quote Office Space, we celebrate the guy's entire catalog. And uh, yeah. we, ha- we have a good time <laughs> with it all. And um, we are just happy that we got to um, soak in uh, Dave's perspective uh, of that magical record all these years later. So if you guys agree with that, if you disagree with that, I, I want to know in the comments of wherever you're listening to this bad boy on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, threads, whatever it is. Um, and if you want more people to hear this conversation, other conversations that we've had on the show, and every other episode that we do, um, you can always rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform of choice. Feed that algorithm. There you go. That's all you got to do. All right, gang. Um, well, like I said, uh, I think last week we've got a number of other really cool interviews popping up throughout the rest of this calendar year. I'm very excited for them and whatever. 2024 has in store it's already the end of the year basically oh my god hey, what better time to talk about pearl jam jason than the holidays huh we always we always <laughs> save the best for last every year every year, year. all right well we'll see you next week guys and until we do you've been listening to the state of love and trust the state of love and trust